there's still an enormous amount of pressure within some Catholic communities and institutions to try to get fixed. Uh, yeah. There's still people today who think that their only option is to try conversion therapy to become straight uh, because they don't perceive a future for themselves in the church, often because they don't know of anybody. Right. Uh, they certainly don't know anyone in their community who's openly gay and practicing Catholic. And if you don't know that people like that exist, of course you're going to have a hard time imagining that you might be the only one in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and today I'm talking with Eve Tushnet. She's an author and blogger who writes primarily about her experience of being both gay and Catholic. She has a really interesting background, though, because she was raised in a secular Jewish household, and so she didn't experience a lot of that inherent guilt or shame that I think a lot of gay Christians experience growing up. And then she came into the church in college, knowing full well the church is teaching on same-sex marriage and homosexuality. So she's chosen to live fully in the church as a celibate woman, but she also doesn't shy away from identifying herself as gay or talking about her sexuality and the tensions that it creates for her. I think Eve is a great model of integration because so often we want to either say that your sexual orientation completely defines you or it's not allowed to define you at all, uh, when the truth, like most things, is somewhere in the middle. I think, unfortunately, the church has, at times, both explicitly and implicitly, made people feel like their very sexuality is a barrier to knowing God, or worse, to being loved by God. And that is simply not the case. The reality is that wherever you are with your sexuality, you are not rejected by God. In fact, St. Paul says that nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation with Eve. I hope you check out some of her books. Uh, and I especially hope you share it with priests and those who pastor congregations that most likely have gay people in them. Also, I hope that you like, comment, share, subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff. And now, my conversation with Eve Tushnet. Eve Tushnet is a writer and blogger based in Washington, D.C., Raised in a secular Jewish household, she converted to Catholicism as an undergraduate at Yale University. In addition to numerous articles for publications like the American Conservative and America Magazine, she has written two books, the first of which is Gay and Catholic, Accepting My Sexuality, Finding Community, Li Living My Faith, written in 2014. And her most recent book is called Tenderness, A Gay Christian's Guide to Unlearning Rejection and Experiencing God's Extravagant Love. Hi, Eve. Thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thank you. Thanks very much. How are you? Good, good. How are you all? We are doing great. Um, so I was looking at your Twitter bio, and I noticed that you had a special tagline for your new book. You said, uh, gayer and more Catholic than ever, which I thought was funny because in some ways you are 
both alienating yourself from both those groups and adding yourself to both those groups. Um, so I was wondering, do you feel equally like at home in both the Catholic and the gay community? Sure. I guess equally at home, equally not at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, at this point, so many of the Catholics that I know and I'm close to are themselves in the LGBT community. Yeah. That it's, you know, you're very aware of how big the overlap really is. Um, And, you know, I, these are the people that I love. One of the great things about having written Gay and Catholic was that I got to meet so many people after that who are living in that world and just found out, like, what a delight. uh, Yeah. It is. So I guess in that sense, I mean, that overlapping community is probably the one that I feel most at home in. Right, right. And again, bigger than people think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's that's something that made me curious to talk to you about because um, I think there's sort of these two camps in the church where there's like the very maybe vocal pro-pride, LGBT, you know, uh, sort of rainbow flag Catholic community. And then there's kind of this almost closeted community where it's like, you know, we don't say gay, we say SSA and it's sort of hush hush. Um, and I think that you kind of have formed territory maybe in the middle of, of both those camps where it's like, no, you can say gay, lesbian. It's it's not um, necessarily a dirty word, but you're also not necessarily, um, I don't know, maybe the, the flag bearer at the pride parade. <laughs> or, may, or maybe you are. Yeah, I mean, maybe someday. Maybe someday. I, I, think, that, I think that would be good. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I think of my situation as basically, what if you can have a life that is genuinely self-accepting and at mm-hmm. peace with your experience and the reality of your life mm-hmm. and in harmony with the churches and the church's teachings? What if you don't have to choose? Uh, and I think there are a lot of things that need to change in Catholic communities before that's a possibility that a lot of people are able to even recognize or imagine. I think right now, part of the reason there is that division is that it's very hard for people to imagine what a life that genuinely uh, was self-accepting would look like in the church. What a life that was trying to be both obedient and honest, right, uh, would look like because they haven't seen it. They really have not, and so people feel that they need to pick one of those or the other. Right. Yeah. I saw you had written something, um, an article about priests, and you said, um, you know, some people blame the sex abuse crisis on, um, you know, sort of a homosexual subculture, and you said, well. The solution, um, you know, you're either, you're always going to have gay priests. You're either going to have priests in the closet, or you're going to have priests who are, you know, open about that, but living the celibate life, um, and you know, kind of, I guess maybe you could say, an integrated sexuality. Yeah, I mean, so I should say, I do not feel like I understand either the life of priesthood Mm. or the abuse crisis well enough to have a really firm kind of, this is my position, this is what will fix it. Right. Uh, But I do think if you look at the situation, it's hard not to think that the closet creates some of the problem, Mm. that you end up with priests who are very damaged and have no one, and are are also very vulnerable to manipulation because they're not 
open with other people about what they're going through. And both of those things, I think, do contribute to some parts of the abuse crisis, although it's like a big, far-ranging thing. Sure. Where that's only one small aspect. Right. But anyway, but that's sort of, I mean, in general, I think that word you used of integration is exactly what I'm hoping people can have uh, and what I'm sort of seeking in my own life. Yeah. So, I mean, for you, since you were raised in a secular Jewish household, very progressive, there wasn't really um, maybe a stigma against homosexuality. Do you feel like you still experience some of that kind of closeted existence, like maybe once you converted? Um, a little bit, but to be honest, I was really spared that. Yeah. Uh, you know, part of the reason that I do believe that a better way of being Catholic is possible is that I've had some taste of it mm-hmm. uh, that I think a lot of people who grew up gay in the church haven't. Um so I did, I, I, you know, I went through, I was already out of the closet to everybody when I became Catholic. Everyone who brought me into the church who first introduced me to Christ knew this about me. And probably in part because they were in a very gay, friendly, very secular environment, were mm. kind of used to it. Like, okay. it wasn't a big deal to them. They didn't necessarily understand it, but they also like didn't understand a lot of things and were aware of that. And there was a kind of humility in them that I think was really protective for me. They did not come to me like, let's sit down and have a conversation about what Jesus thinks about your sex mm. life. <laughs> right, right. They kind of like, they, they talked about their own faith and what was most beautiful and important to them in being Catholic and let me come to them when I had questions. Yeah. Yeah, I think there can be this tendency to kind of put the gay Catholic or the gay Christian in this separate box where mm-hmm. we're allowed to ask them questions that we wouldn't ask about anybody else, you know? Like, <laughs> I, w- I would never go up to any friend and inqu- or stranger and inquire about their, you know, sexual struggles or sexual habits, but it kind of seems to be this thing that if, if you're gay and Catholic, like, you have to come out, and the first thing you have to say is, like, I'm celibate or I'm side right. A or I'm side B, right, and, you right. know? And it's like, is that the first thing we need to know about you. (laughs) Right. Well, this is, in my opinion, part of a larger issue of focusing so much on the moral teachings of the church, which are real and important, but you forget why people care. Mm. Like the reason the moral teaching of the church is important is that Jesus loves you. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, this is a way that this is the way that he's given us. And we follow in this way and how we worship him in the liturgy. We follow this way and how we worship him with our bodies in our actions day to day and caring for those in need. Like all of that flows out of the initial encounter with love. Right. And if you get it backward and try to give people the moral law without that encounter with love or, kind of let it get disproportionate it starts to seem like the point of being a christian is to do particular moral actions instead of morality being a part of how we worship the god who is really the center of our lives right yeah i was thinking about that recently when i was reading um the story of the woman caught in adultery i mean i think we we Mm -hmm. always quote that story as like let he who is without sin cast the first stone Uh, but it really is profound that that's what jesus says before he says, go and sin no more, um, the order matters. It's not just having all the right phrases. Like, the order matters. Yeah, he makes her safe. 
first Mm. before he guides her, before he educates her. And I think that's something there. I would say there's kind of two areas where our Catholic communities really have fallen down. One is in knowing how to guide people's desires, knowing that there is guidance for the longing for same sex love for all the, for like the huge kind of tangle of experiences that make up being gay. The church does actually have education for those desires. Mm -hmm. Uh, And maybe we can talk about that in a bit, but also just the initial step of making people safe of making it okay to even come out or to raise those questions or to say, I am confused and struggle, or I'm doing something that I know you guys think is wrong. Right. Uh, and to have that be like a safe thing to do. Right, right. So you talk about this a little bit in, in tenderness, but what are some of the ways that people do the opposite of that? What are some of, you have like this, uh, this sort of drinking game, you call it, um, but what are some of the most harmful or um, least helpful ways that people can respond to a Catholic who comes to a priest or a minister or someone, you know, they trust and, and says, hey, I'm, I think I'm gay or I think I'm, I'm struggling with this. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of really specific stuff that happens a lot. You know, people who say, oh, you're not gay. You're a beloved child of God, mm. which is like, first of all, just let people say the thing that's on their hearts. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, if they're not understanding in the right framework, they'll get to that. You know, right. if you really care for them and, and kind of protect them and guide them, they'll get there eventually. You don't have to kind of like make people have your whole paradigm mm-hmm. before you can help them. Uh, but even beyond that, I think that specific idea separates, attempts to separate people from gay communities that they could actually learn some stuff from and separate and ma- makes a division creates that dichotomy between being gay and being Christian uh, and loving mm-hmm. God in a way that's really painful for people. So that's like a dumb specific one that does come up quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it sounds um, very yeah. benign. Like, no, you're not, you're a beloved right, child of God. Right. It sounds really nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't, it's, it's not, you know, hellfire brimstone, like, you know, you're destined for damnation. It's, it's it's it true really in a way. Exactly. But. Right. It's it's the framing of it as a choice. Mm. You can either be gay or you can be a beloved child of God. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't really know what to do with that, you know? Right. right. Um, and there are a lot, I, I was, I guess I would say, if you want a sort of overarching umbrella, I think a few things, not having any idea of a good future for a gay person, mm. uh, there's still an enormous amount of pressure within some Catholic communities and institutions to try to get fixed. Uh, There's still people today who think that their only option is to try conversion therapy to become straight uh, because they don't perceive a future for themselves in the church, often because they don't know of anybody. Right. Uh, They certainly don't know anyone in their community who's openly gay and practicing Catholic And if you don't know that people like that exist, of course, you're going to have a hard time imagining that you might be the only one in the world. Right. Uh, So there's that. Uh, And suspicion, not letting people articulate their own experience, but having to impose what someone else thinks their experience should be. I think that comes up in a lot of the policing of language of like, you Mm -hmm. can't say gay. Uh, 
but it's also a more global kind of attitude of the things that gay people say about our own lives and experience are kind of scrutinized for perceived heresy or danger or uh, anything that might be used to say this isn't this isn't right instead of just like let people say their thing right look for what is good in it mm-hmm. and cultivate that and give them the space to work out how can they have you know the 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 love and the love of god and the intimacy that they long for like right. how can people have sort of i think there's often an attitude of looking for what's wrong in what gay people say and not saying wait but so much of this is is true and right yeah. and often leading people to potentially a very deep faith if they can find a way for it to be recognized. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think I've also heard a lot of stories about persons who, um, you know, they're, they're not just looking for maybe a priest or somebody like that to kind of build them up. But, you know, a lot of them are wrestling with like, like they don't even want to be gay, you know, they, they, it's not just that there's a priest imposing maybe conversion therapy Mm -hmm. on them or their parents, like trying to send them to sort of fix them, but they deeply want to kind of fix themselves. So, you know, you you think about this, uh, you know, I've heard so many stories of like a young gay teen, like praying and praying like, Lord, please make me straight. Um, I mean, what do you say to somebody in that position where it's like, they, they don't even accept themselves. They don't want to accept themselves. They Mm -hmm. want to be changed. Mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing really is just helping that person get to know the stories of other gay Christians. You know, not all of them are going to end up as obedient Catholic. That's actually okay, too. It can be helpful to know that God can still love you no matter where you go in life and that everyone's path is kind of complicated. Right. <laughs> uh, but I think just ha- just kind of knowing that there are other people out there who can say, I had this, I had the experience that you're going through. I've come to a place where I'm grateful to be gay Mm. and there will be a time for you. If you hang on, you know, you can love and be loved by God without any part of that, uh, any part of your sexual orientation changing. Right. Right. Have you um, been involved in, or have you seen any kind of like, youth outreach or young adult outreach um, that you think is productive or helpful or kind of doing it right? Yeah, to be honest, that's the area where I feel like I know least. Okay. Uh, what's, what, or not even know, but I've seen the least. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually, I'm working on a project now to, with a, with a few other people to create materials for CCD and other oh, things okay. to kind of present gay life as a normal part of Christian life of like when we learn about people in the past who lived out their faith in unusual circumstances, we can also talk about people who were gay, mm-hmm. you know, um, we can talk about, uh, sh- yeah yeah right (laughs) well no it's it's interesting because I I, well I read a critique of of your most recent book Mm -hmm. and I mean it wasn't a very substantive critique but the main critique was basically how dare you say how dare you call yourself a lesbian and how dare you say I'm okay with it I'm at peace with it I'm proud of it or 
I'm, I'm glad of it. Um, and I think there's a lot of people who say, well, we don't want to speak about people's sexuality like we just want to talk about them as a whole person like we shouldn't Mm -hmm. we shouldn't even use these labels these labels are somehow Mm -hmm. maybe limiting or or demeaning Mm -hmm. you know what do you say to that perspective oh sure i mean right like as with many things there's a kernel of truth in that right like these labels are relatively new there were experiences of the intersection of sexuality and longing and life commitment that are that are not the same ways that we think about them today like that's all and they are limiting labels are inherently limiting that right. part is true <laughs> yeah um the other thing though is that people are so grateful to find the label because yeah. they felt so alone yeah yeah like it's really the community is what it gives you and this is why one of the things that was important for me was realizing that pressuring people not to use labels on their sexual orientation is often an attempt to separate them mm. from LGBT communities Mm -hmm. uh, and viewing those purely as sources of temptation as opposed to like maybe these people actually do have some insights or there could be some solidarity even across differences in faith. Right, right. So then to to a Catholic who who says, you know, you have to use the term SSA, you can't Mm -hmm. use the LGBTQ (laughs) ever-expanding acronym, um, would you basically just say, no, like these terms are helpful for people understanding what they're going through? I mean, I think it's just, it's a way of connecting, yeah, to people who have experienced some things that are similar to you. Yeah. So is SSA, right? Like yeah. that too is a label that creates its own community. Right. So you don't think it should be an either or? Not necessarily. I will say, you know, people's experience varies. Some people really do relate much more to the self-understanding of same-sex attraction. Um, The thing I would say, one thing I would say that you gain with gay as versus SSA is that it it is not as tightly focused purely on sexual desire. Oh, okay. Being gay is like a big tangle of experiences. It's almost like a kaleidoscope with a lot of different pieces making up the image that you see where sexual desire is certainly part of it for almost everybody but there's also a longing for life commitment to someone of the same sex a longing to love someone of the same sex a sort of uh membership in a marginalized community there's lots of things that make it up that are much that are like not sinful you know right right and it can be really helpful for people to say wait you know, I'm receiving, this is not solely an experience of temptation for me. Mm-hmm. It's not solely something that I need to be trying to kind of move past. For some people, it probably is. I don't want to impose my understanding on everybody. Sure. But one thing that's been really helpful for me is seeing how much of my experience, specifically as a lesbian, the church actually responds to positively and says, no, yes, like, solidarity with people in marginalized communities is good like you know loving another woman and desiring to unite your life with her that's in the bible yeah (laughs) that's the covenant that jonathan and david make or the promises of ruth and naomi or even the kinship that jesus and john share Mm -hmm. when jesus gives john and mary to one another as family because of his friendship with john there are ways to make life commitment through a love of someone of the same sex 
that are recognized in scripture and have persisted throughout Christian history until very, pretty recently, till the past couple hundred years. Mm. Uh, and now we've really lost these models. And the only model we have for adults making family together is marriage or sexual relationship. Yeah. And so it becomes much harder. Uh, I personally, this is a very personal opinion. It's not a sort of like statement about church teaching or whatever. Yeah. I personally think it's not a coincidence that gay movements arose only after forms of publicly recognized and honored uh, covenant friendship and other forms of same-sex love had been uh, forgotten. I didn't even know there ever was such a thing. What what do you mean? What do you, um, Mm -hmm. publicly recognized? Yeah, so uh, the classic book on this, if you want sort of a full picture of it, is called The Friend by Alan Bray. He's only, Mm B-R-A-Y, he's only looking at England, uh, but the patterns that he finds show up in other ways in other other parts of Europe. Um, And he's basically looking at covenants of friendship that were taken between almost always two men, uh, usually because men are the head of household and it was a way of uniting households, uniting families. Uh, and we just frankly don't have a lot of record about how women thought about their lives, yeah. uh, even when they would have had enough control over their lives to make that kind of decision. Uh, but they were able to do basically what Jonathan and David do. Uh, they become family to one another. They, uh, they're, how they did it very, but a standard promise would be something like to share their household, to share their home, to care for one another's children if they had them, to uh, share their finances. Whoever died first, the other person would have masses said for their soul. Oh, so there was a kind of spiritual obligation. Yeah. There are some ceremonies for this that are very beautiful. Really? Alan Bray describes one where you would go to the church you would exchange your promises on the steps of the church, exchange the, mm, go in, hear mass together, uh, exchange the kiss of peace and receive the Eucharist together. And that would be kind really? of the seal of your covenant with one another. Wow. Yeah. So this is sort of a, like a, a right, like an, like a, a somewhat formal right that used to exist in the church. Yeah. Yes, it became, there's a, there's a separate history in the Eastern church that looks different in various ways okay. and is more wow. formal, okay. uh, much more ritualized and it gets the priest involved, which the Western traditions don't do. Right. Uh, but it's people, in my opinion, it's a response to the real beauty of same sex love, which again, we see in the Bible, which is open to everyone right. and which, you know, I think straight people experience this too, if they're lucky, mm-hmm. but gay people have like an, a special urgency in rediscovering these models and saying like, we actually need these. We yeah. need to know that there's some kind of education for the longings that we feel that there's guidance that the church can offer and not just, well, don't do it this way. Right. So like, what are you supposed to do with it? Just uproot the longing or is there a way that you can actually kind of help it to grow in the right way? Yeah. Well, I can imagine a lot of people saying, um, you know, especially I think in our somewhat puritanical world to say like, no, no, like that's going to be a near occasion of sin. That's going to be temptation. Like don't, I mean, I don't know, in, in these in these covenant situations where people often living in the same home mm-hmm. together? Yeah. Yeah. So what would you say to somebody who says, no, that's just, that's that's near occasion of sin. You're, you're putting yourself in harm's way by doing that. Yeah. I mean, I honestly think my strongest response to that is really just making people be alone is also a near occasion of sin for them. Oh, it's wow. a near occasion of despair. Wow. 
um, and lust, you know, you yeah, actually true. don't need I mean, another absolutely. person there to lust. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. Um, and a lot of other sins. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, it can be really good to live with someone who knows you and loves you and wants yeah. the best for you. And there will be temptations with that. I think any parent will say, as you add people to your life who you love, there are temptations. You might yell at your kids, you know. Sure. Yeah. You might be really. You might really. <laughs> Humans are near occasions of sin. <laughs> I always notice that, like, because I, I live by myself. Um, mm. So whenever I go, like, on a trip, uh, you know, with family, like, all of a sudden my my confession, you know, the week after will change because, I, I mean, most times I don't have to confess being irritable and in short with my parents or my siblings or whatever, because it's just, it's just not an issue when you live by yourself. Right. And I guess my feeling is with every other kind of love relationship, the church will identify particular sins that can be common to that and that they would try to caution you away from, but they'll also give you guidance in how to do it right. Right. And like, we could be doing this with same sex love also yeah. it's not it's ultimately not that complicated and priests who have worked with gay couples coming into the church or people who are trying to who are like we've been a gay couple for a long time we want now to live in a way that is we're exploring the possibility of living in a more catholic way being more obedient what does that look like right they've found you know you can help people love each other mm-hmm. you don't have to say break up the way that some people were told in the past yeah yeah. Yeah. I saw you had written somewhere that for, for gay people, the biggest temptation is not lust, but despair. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate more on that? Like what kind of despair, what is the feelings of despair regarding their future, regarding their sexuality? Yeah, I think all of it, right? Like there, is there any future for me in the church? Mm-hmm. Uh, does God really love me? Why is God doing this to me? Yeah. Uh, if you can only receive being gay as almost like a punishment, then you're like, well, but what did I do? You right, know, right. instead of being able to see it as in many ways a blessing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of just feeling of I have tr- for many people, they try to be straight yeah. and do a lot of destructive things, just destru- harmful to themselves, harmful to others in in that pursuit. And at the end, they're like still very gay Mm -hmm. and now much more traumatized and and, like angry and hurting and, you know, much further from God, much further Mm -hmm. from being able to trust God. Uh, And I've seen people come through that and still have their faith. Right. But it is a hard passage. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think even, you know, I, I feel like for myself, you know, I haven't struggled with same-sex attraction, attraction, but I'm a 30-year-old single woman, and there's kind of a unique cross with that, too, that it's hard to find people to relate to. You know, all my friends are married with children, and so I think I've felt in the past year or so kind of an interesting kinship with people who would identify as gay, because part of me is, is going like, oh my gosh, like, is God depriving me of... Mm this future of marriage and family and love that I want, you know, what have I done wrong? Is he punishing me? And, you know, I, I think it, it's not the same as, you know, what your experience or what someone sure. else's experience might be, but it is this, I mean, I did find myself, you know, in times of heartbreak, tempted to despair, yep. like, 
um, you know, feeling like God has not answered my prayers. God has rejected my yeah. prayers. And, yeah. um, you know, I mean, yeah, you have to really grapple with loneliness, I think, in a way that a lot of people who just sort of get married, like, at 22 and, you know, have five kids right away. It's like, I'm not to say there can't be loneliness in married life as well, no, but it's, it's just a different question. You, you see your future. You don't see the trajectory of it as clearly, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I think that's, I've tried to talk about a lot of different ways that people can live well in harmony with the church. You know, I talk about the covenant friendship as in the same-sex love because that's so unknown, but I think it's important to say that there's also lots of other paths like intentional community, service to those in need, but in the end, like, that can, you know, people just want to know that there's a home for them. Right, right. So I'm curious for you personally, I mean, do you... Do you live alone? Do you live with an intentional community? Have you, are you seeking kind of a full, I don't know, some kind of partnership in that way? Is that too personal? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it's okay for me to say this. I am discerning that possibility with someone right now. Okay. Um, okay. I don't know where that'll go. Sure, uh, sure. But that's, that's definitely on the table in a way that it was not a year ago. So that's exciting. Yeah. Um, and potentially, you know, we'll see. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then at the moment, I live with a housemate. I'm about to move back with my parents, which okay. I'm looking forward to. Oh, okay. Nice, nice. Yeah. Um, well, we're running out of time here, so I want to just ask um, two questions that you can put, like, you know, two pieces of advice that you could give to different types of listeners. So what would you say first to the priest or the pastor who um, – I think there's a lot of pastors who would say, you know, they're, they're, they're orthodox, they're conservative. They don't want to – if they're going to speak about an LGBT thing from the pulpit, it's going to be how we should oppose gay marriage or something like that. So what would you say to that kind of priest um, in terms of how he can, I don't know, I guess toe the line with the church, but also welcome people who are having those experiences of, of being gay or same-sex attracted or, or maybe yeah. minister to their particular mm-hmm. needs? Yeah, I'll say two things. One is to look for the good in whatever they're doing. Yeah. Uh, that you're not going to know how to help them flourish if you can't see the good that they're longing for, um, even in the aspects of their lives that may seem disordered. And then the other thing is, like, focus on the next right thing. You're trying to help these people get closer to Jesus and to trust in God's love. That's the only reason they'll ever trust the church to guide their lives in such a personal area. And they may not be ready, willing, or interested in opening the question of sexual ethics, and that is okay. Mm. There are probably other areas of their lives where they are longing for change, ready for change, wanting to pray more wanting to serve others like you can help them do the thing that they're willing to do yeah and trust that the holy spirit will work with that yeah you don't have to say you can't do anything until you're willing to do the sex part right right which i mean i, th- I think a lot of priests have experienced you know meeting with yeah. engaged couples who are yeah. living together or whatever sleeping together and um usually their perspective is to try to, you know, they want them to still get married within the church. You know, they, they want to bring them to reconciliation. They're not just saying, sorry. Um, so. Right. They have a vision for the future that that these people could have together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then what would you say to the young person, maybe high school, college, young adult who, um, is aware of these feelings of, you know, same sex attraction and they're really battling it. They feel, I mean, they feel hopeless. They feel like uh, 
they have to fit into this maybe straight mold that they they can't seem to fit into, but they, you know, they just feel lost. Like, what would you say to that kind of person? I would not, I, you know, there's so much I wish I could say. Um, yeah. One quick thing is just to find the places, the prayers, the communities, the people that help you genuinely see God as tenderness, mm. that God's love is tender. Spend more time with that yeah. and try to not be afraid. Like, I think a lot of people spend a long time trying to be good Catholics because they're terrified of what happens if they set a foot outside of that. Yeah. And that's ultimately, over the long term, I think that makes it harder to trust God, not easier. Wow. So there's a kind of like, what can I do now that will help me to genuinely trust that God is a loving shepherd and not just someone who's waiting to punish me if I break a rule? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's experience that a lot of Catholics have. Yeah. Yes. I mean, doesn't apply just the same sex attracted persons like you know my mom talks about growing up in New York with like the very Mm -hmm. mean nuns and you know they put the fear of God in you in a way that I mean for her like she had to leave the church and come back and and rediscover Catholicism for in her case like through the charismatic renewal but through something that does emphasize like God's love God's mercy God's compassion which was Mm -hmm. you know she didn't get in her upbringing Mm -hmm. yeah I know exactly yeah awesome Wow. Well, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but um, we'll, we'll keep this short and maybe I can bring you back sometime. But thank you so much for your time. And um, once again, you have these two books, Gay and Catholic and Tenderness, which I'm assuming are available at all places that books are sold. Yeah, you know, they're well, they're online anyway. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> the, and, and I should also say uh, my email, I do answer all my email oh, okay. eventually. Okay. <laughs> That's a virtue in of itself. I try, man. It's Eve underscore Tushnet at yahoo.com. Okay. And can you spell Tushnet? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's E-V-E underscore. T as in Tom, U-S-H-N as in Norman, E as in Edward, T as in Tom at yahoo.com. Okay, great. And you're also on Twitter, right? And <laughs> Pathios? Yes. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. Thank you so much, Eve. Thank you. This was wonderful. Awesome. God bless. Um,